0: This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Our carbon footprint depends as much on the cars in our driveways
1: as the food on our plates. So what's a climate conscious eater to do? It's really not a controversial idea at this point that eating less meat is healthier for us and better for the planet. But if reducing our appetites for meat is a good thing, wouldn't going vegan be even better?
2: There is no evidence that the optimal food system from an ecological standpoint excludes animals entirely.
0: And what about GMOs? Are they a safe and effective way to beef up our food supply?
3: Or a corporate profit-making scheme that weakens the health of our crops
0: and hamstrings America's farmers?
3: It's about tools in the toolbox, and GMOs are just one of those tools. And farmers should be given the choice to allow them to choose what tools they want to employ in their operations. Climate
0: on your plate, up next on Climate One. How should climate change affect what we put on our dinner plates? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One Conversations, with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. On today's show, Greg and his guests discuss some of the options available to people who want to eat a climate conscious diet. We begin with the divisive issue of genetically modified organisms. Supporters of GMOs say that altering the DNA of corn and other crops is just another tool in the farmer's toolbox, an innovation that will help feed a world whose food production has been disrupted by climate change. Opponents say that modified crops are dangerous to our health. They're resistant to pesticides such as Monsanto's Roundup, which has been linked to cancer, and that they're jeopardizing crops by creating a destructive cycle of Roundup resistance. To talk about GMOs, Greg has rounded up three guests. John Purcell is vice president of Monsanto Vegetables and head of their global research and development. Scott Kennedy is director of Food Evolution, a documentary on GMOs narrated by Neil deGrasse Tyson. And Austin Wilson is environmental health program manager with the shareholder advocacy group As You Sow and author of a new report, Roundup Revealed, Glyphosate in Our Food System. Here's our conversation
4: rounding up the facts on GMOs. John Purcell, let's begin with you. Uh, in the f- film, uh, Food Evolution, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson notes that Monsanto is one of the most hated companies in the world. Why do people have such strong feelings uh, toward Monsanto? Well, I think uh, you
3: maybe need to ask some people that, that are expressing those views, but I, I think for me, I've been at Monsanto for, uh, for 28 years now. And and I went there, uh, I was a bug guy, I studied insects in uh, graduate school. And I went there and what really struck me about Monsanto was the vision that agriculture was gonna change. But when you are visionary, when you are trying to bring new technology to the market, it's not always smooth. And I think for me though, that vision that agriculture was gonna change and biology would be a huge driver of that, that's what got me and a lot of the biologists that came to Monsanto excited because we wanted to find new ways to help farmers. And we wanted to do it in a sustainable fashion. And we wanted to make sure all the tools of modern biology are being used. And that's still what attracts me today, almost three decades later, about Monsanto. It's providing those tools to growers.
4: Yeah, new innovation. Austin Wilson, you authored a report on glyphosate, uh, which is the the, the herbicide known as Roundup. uh, And a lot of that is applied to uh, soybean, corn in the American Midwest. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your take on this in terms of GMOs and, and, and the pesticides used, part of the solution to climate change or part of the problem?
5: So half of American farmland is planted with just three crops, genetically engineered soybeans, corn, and cotton. And that's reflective of the overall system where 99% of GMOs that are grown either produce insecticide, they're embedded with Bt, bacterial insecticide, or they are tolerant to toxic herbicides like Roundup, Dicamba, and 2,4-D. 80% of global GMOs are applied with, uh, with Roundup. And Roundup, two years ago, uh, was classified by the World Health Organization's Cancer Authority, the world's leading cancer authority, as a probable carcinogen. To the state of California, it is now labeled as a known carcinogen. There is extensive research on low-dose toxic effects, um, even at the doses that are present in the food system. Um, So these technologies have been used primarily as a pesticide delivery system. Uh, Monsanto and the other, uh, there are six seed and pesticide companies that control 90% of the world's seed market and 80% of its pesticide market. And that is how this technology has been deployed. Uh, Right now, over 90% of Monsanto's revenue is through uh, Roundup and it's through genetically engineered crops and traits that are meant to be used with pesticides. Only 6% is the seed and uh, the fruit and vegetable division. So that's the big that's the big challenge that this industry is facing. The food industry right now is having a major challenge of grappling with sustainability. Their customers want sustainable food. Their investors want them to be ready for climate change and have resilient long term sustainable systems. GMOs have been a barrier to that sustainability because they've been driving pesticide use.
4: Scott Kennedy, your film looks at this from both sides, though it's supported by the food industry, food scientists. Uh, and there's a piece in there that claims that the, the amount of uh, fertilizer goes up, but the toxicity is actually down. Tell us that piece.
6: That's a good example Uh, I'd love to I'd love to take a step back and just say very clearly I don't work for Monsanto (laughs) just by we kind of position this as a being a one side against another side and uh, the film was produced independently the film was I had a final cut on the film and that's a very important part of this and I want to I want to like things get conflated in this conversation so much right and we say that GMOs are this or GMOs are that and I think that the conversation around food has really gotten out of has gotten out of balance and a way that we can get some of that bounce back is saying, yes, Anne, and really looking at pieces individually, right? That's one of the reasons we wanted to make the film. So what is a GMO, right? GMO is a a process, not a product. You guys are talking about a very specific product, and you want to continue talking about that. We can talk about that, but let's not remove this piece of technology that can be used to, say, save the bananas in Africa and has nothing to do with Monsanto. So let's just separate those two things, and we can continue that as we go go along today. Um, So glyphosate, Roundup. Did pounds of it increase as, the, as Roundup products came into market? Yes. So Chuck Benbrook had a study. That's on the front page. The thing that was left out, and that became memes and was communicated all over the world. The thing that was left out is two pages later, he also said that because of glyphosate's very low toxicity and low impact on the environment, he doesn't see any increase in environmental impact. So we leave that out of the conversation, bring that nuance into the conversation.
4: Um, Gabe Brown is a farmer in North Dakota who says his crops and health and the health of his soil are doing better without glyphosate. Let's listen.
7: My name is Gabe Brown, and I farm and ranch near Bismarck, North Dakota. We grow a wide variety of cash crops, everything from corn, barley, peas, wheat, oats, The ranch has been in my wife's family since 1956, and my wife and I bought it from them in 1991. When I originally started farming, I took over a farm that was very conventional tillage with the use of fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides and fungicides. And as my knowledge progressed and I learned more about how soil functions, I learned that those things are detrimental to a healthy functioning ecosystem. So we quit using glyphosate five or six years ago now, and we've noticed an improvement in the health of the plants because of that. I can understand why producers use it because it's very easy, but the long-term health of their resource is being negatively affected by the use of glyphosate. Monsanto, they're like any other large agribusiness company. They're profit-driven, and in my mind, they do not put the resource or human health first.
4: That was North Dakota farmer Gabe Brown. So, John Purcell, your response. Some farmers like it. Obviously, a lot of farmers are using it. There's a farmer who said, I don't need to use it anymore, and the uh, plants are healthier without it. You
3: know, this is about what are the tools you want to use? Tools in the t- My dad was a carpenter, and he said, don't, go for, don't leave for a job unless you've got right tools in the toolbox. GMOs are one tool. Pesticides are one tool. Uh, th- think about biologicals. Think about some of these marshals. These are all tools in the toolbox. Growers are going to choose different production methods. As a seed company, I want to provide seed to growers who want to grow GMOs, want to grow conventionally, and want to grow organic. I'm in the vegetable business. You cannot be in the vegetable business unless you have products that actually will support... 100, you know, almost $100 billion industry, organic market. We're about providing solutions for growers, whatever choice they make, and that's what it's about. It's about tools in the toolbox, and GMOs are just one of those tools. Pesticides is just one of those tools, and farmers should give, be given the choice to allow them to choose what tools they want to employ in their operations.
4: Austin Wilson, your report talks about pre-harvest spraying of, of, uh, of glyphosate. Tell us about that and what the concern is.
5: Right now, for the company's business strategy and the other pesticide companies there really has only been one tool and that tool has been herbicide use Um, there one of the new ways in which monsanto is encouraging farmers to use roundup is to spray it on crops just before harvest so that when if the crop is drying somewhat unevenly that it dries evenly and harvest can begin earlier and this is something that is demonstrably, uh, raising the glyphosate residues in food to very high levels. It's something that has questionable benefits, and with such a high potential risk, it's something that really uh, is more deserving of scrutiny and has been flying under the radar until very recently. Um, So that has been something that the company's been encouraging farmers to do on wheat, barley, uh, edible beans, and other crops. But there's two really quick things that I need to point out. One is that the World Health Organization uh, doesn't reflect the conclusion that the EPA has come to about glyphosate. So let's talk about the EPA's pesticide office very quickly. The EPA's pesticide office uses non-public industry studies and they use outdated rules that discount the vast majority of peer-reviewed science. Because of that, EPA is not looking at the large quantity of academic science that the World Health Organization's cancer authority is looking at when it reviews glyphosate. EPA's recent scientific scientific advisory panel just concluded that EPA did not follow its own guidelines when it was assessing glyphosate's carcinogenicity last fall. And EPA did consider uh, Roundup and glyphosate to be carcinogenic back in the early 90s, but changed its mind after intervention by the industry. So there is a long and deep history here that is uh, really worth looking into.
4: Are you against GMOs anytime, anywhere? No,
5: technology is not inherently good or bad. It's about how we deploy it in the real world. And right now, all these tools, these sound like great beneficial tools, and I'm glad that there are companies out there developing them. Right now, the tool that has been dramatically overused... Are these pet these pesticide dependent technologies that's what mo- most of the company's revenue comes from and now we've planted so many roundup ready crops across the country and across the world that there are super weeds resistant to glyphosate on half of u.s farms well the company's strategy now has been to develop new crops that are resistant to both glyphosate and dicamba dow chemical is already selling crops that are resistant to glyphosate and 24D. These are pesticides that are known to be more toxic and volatile. 24D is a known carcinogen. It was used in Agent Orange, and we're going to be using more pesticides, 10 times more 24D and dicamba than we are today, by the company's own plans. That's not sustainable agriculture. Sustainable agriculture is about agroecology, integrated pest management, and using pesticides as little as possible. And possibly using GMOs.
6: Scott Kennedy, you think organics are oversold? Why? In this conversation, it feels like sometimes people are talking about this, that, you know, organic is a miracle and it's going to save my children, save the planet and GMOs are poison. And it's sort of like, yeah, I'm a hypocrite, but for the left. And it's a shame because we want so many many of the same things, right? So this is not an either or. GMOs were considered to be part of uh, organic uh, certification in the beginning. And and some people fought against that. We can grow GMO seeds organically. So back to your question about uh, about organic. So organic farming, I don't have a problem with organic farming. It can be delicious. It's taught us a lot about the uh, inputs that we put into our system, but I do have a problem with somebody telling me that I'm not a good father or I'm putting my kids at risk if I'm not buying organic food. There's no science to support that. And my question to the audience is, which is more important for our kids? That they eat organic vegetables? Or they eat fruits and vegetables, and we know the answer is to eat fruits and vegetables, and how hard that is. John Purcell,
4: yeah. would Monsanto support more R&D, more funding for organics?
3: We support organic growers. I've got a lot of organic customers, and I think the problem is we become so binary. This is right, this is wrong, this is good. My brother's ranch, small local, people come. To this. It's wonderful. It's small. It's local. It's family-owned. But he's not, he's a pork guy, small local pork. He's not putting pork chops in grocery stores around the country, you need both. We need all kinds of agriculture. We support organic growers. Some of our, our varieties, organic it works great because we have more resistance built into the varieties. They don't have some of the tools. They use pesticides, organic pesticides. But they don't have all the tools, conventional growers. So having that resistance in the seed is actually a good thing for organic growers. So absolutely try to support the organic market.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about GMOs and climate conscious eating. Coming up, Greg Dalton and his guests will debate the climate impact of going vegan.
2: When you get rid of animals, you're actually throwing the baby out with the bathwater because they're an essential part of sustainable food production.
0: That's coming up when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One and this question. Are cows a climate villain or solution? The documentary Cowspiracy holds that animal agriculture is the number one source of climate killing pollution and that the notion of a sustainable meat production is a sham. Others, however, claim that responsibly raised livestock play an indispensable role in healthy ecosystems. Joining Greg Dalton to debate good and bad beef are Kip Anderson, co-director of Cowspiracy and founder of AUM Films and Media, a nonprofit focused on promoting compassion and harmony for all life. Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, a vegetarian who raises cattle north of San Francisco. She's a critic of industrial meat production and the author of two books, Righteous Pork Chop, Finding a Life and Good Food Beyond Factory Farms, and Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production. And Jonathan Kaplan, director of the Food and Agricultural Program at the National Resources Defense Council. He leads initiatives to reduce antibiotic use in the livestock industry and eliminate toxic chemicals from the food supply. Here's Greg and our conversation about cows and climate change.
4: Nicolet HaNyman, let's begin. In 2006, the Food and Agriculture Organization issues a seminal report called (coughs) Livestock's Long Shadow. Tell us about that report and what it said.
2: So... um Up until that point, there wasn't a lot of talk about livestock as a major contributor to uh, global warming. And in 2006, the Food and Agriculture Organization published the report, Livestock's Long Shadow, which basically said it was all livestock together contributed about 18% of total global warming gases globally. Now, the figure looked at a lot of issues in defending beef, I argue that a lot of the figures should not have been included in that 18%, because, for example, about 38% of that total 18% was actually from land use changes. So it wasn't actually directly related to livestock raising. It was primarily deforestation in Brazil, Indonesia, and Sudan. And there were other issues. But it was a pivotal moment in this discussion because um, the media really got a hold of that idea. And in, the, in their headline, in their press release, they said that livestock actually caused more global warming emissions than auto or transportation. And they later acknowledged that that was
4: actually incorrect. Jonathan Kaplan, it's big, six, whatever the, the number is, it's big. And animal agriculture has a big impact on the planet.
8: I think that's the bottom line for your listeners. Livestock industry is big when it comes to carbon, when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. I do uh, wonder about the study that says it's 51%. I don't, you know, I'm not convinced it's the biggest. When you look at the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, EPA, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, all those agencies put the number more like you know, 14 15%. Um, but that's still a really big number. So, you know, I don't want to, like, dust that under the rug. And I think most Americans probably don't realize that the number's as big as it is.
4: I do want to get a baseline here. Let's, Adam, roll clip one. We're going to show you some of Cowspiracy, and then have Kip and Jonathan respond.
9: I thought I was doing everything I could to help the planet. But then, with one friend's post, everything changed. The Post sent me a report online published by the United Nations stating that raising livestock produces more greenhouse gases than the emissions of the entire transportation sector. This means that the meat and dairy industry produces more greenhouse gases than the exhaust of all cars, trucks, trains, boats, planes combined. Cows and other farmed animals produce a substantial amount of methane from their digestive process. Methane gas from livestock is 86 times more destructive than carbon dioxide from vehicles. Here, I'd been riding my bike everywhere to help reduce emissions, but it turns out there's more to climate change than just fossil fuels. I started doing more research. The UN, along with other agencies, reported that not only did livestock play a major role in global warming, it is also the leading cause of resource consumption and environmental degradation destroying the planet today. Kip Anderson, your response. Um, so, this one industry is a one-stop shop for if not the number one or two leading cause of deforestation, water consumption, water depletion, ocean dead zones, uh, we've already admitted uh, somewhere up there of greenhouse gases, wildlife killing, the list goes on and on, a one-stop shop. And you go on these, these, these um, environmental groups' websites, and you see this tucked away deep, deep in these organizations' websites. You can't even see it. It needs to be on the forefront. Attention, newsflash. We just found out this one industry is destroying the <coughs> entire planet on one single issue. And the definition of a conspiracy is a group of people gathering together of doing something harmful. And when, when this industry knows, and I know NRDC knows, I know they've seen our film, they, and I know Greenpeace knows and the, and the
4: Rainforest Action Networks, they know this information, and they are not telling it to the public. Let's go to a second clip. There's another part of this film, Cowspiracy, which is about how the environmental groups responded to this.
9: How is it possible I wasn't aware of this? I thought this information would be plastered everywhere in the environmental community. I went to the nation's largest environmental organization's websites, 350.org, Greenpeace, Sierra Club, Climate Reality, Rainforest Action Network, Amazon Watch, and was shocked to see they had virtually nothing on animal agriculture. What was going on? Why wouldn't they have this information on their main page? It seemed the main focus for many of these groups was natural gas and oil production, with fracking being the latest hot issue due to water usage and contamination. Hydraulic fracturing for natural gas uses an incredible amount of water, a staggering 100 billion gallons of water is used every year in the United States. But when I compared this with animal agriculture, raising livestock just in the U.S. consumes 34 trillion gallons of water, and it turns out the methane emissions from both industries are nearly equal.
4: Jonathan Kaplan, is there an environmental? He didn't mention NRDC, which <laughs> yeah, is where you work, right? So
8: <laughs> there's no conspiracy. Let me just say that now. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the film alleges, which I think is absurd, that you know somehow NRDC and other green groups are taking money, perhaps from the livestock industry, to hide, to cover up uh, the impacts of this industry, which you know is is pretty upsetting um, as an allegation and completely without merit. And in fact, NRDC and probably lots of the other groups um, discussed in the film have done a huge amount of work over the years challenging the livestock industry, challenging their pollution, their overuse of antibiotics, the fact that these you know, confined feedlots are basically huge cities' worth of manure that are completely untreated and are despoiling um, rivers and creeks, and really destroying communities where they're located. So I want to just get that out of the way. You know, As you said earlier, we do have a lot to agree on here. Um, we do need to reduce our meat consumption, and we need to force this industry to clean up its act. Um, I don't think it's good enough to say, you know, let's all just stop eating meat and hope everybody agrees, and that's going to be our strategy. That's not going to be a winning strategy. That's going to be part of the solution, but we also have to be there holding this industry accountable and encouraging entrepreneurs who have a more sustainable way to raise animals. That is a really important part of this story, and we have to uh, celebrate them.
4: I received an email from Anna Lepay, who's author of Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork. And she wrote that environmentalists were silent for quite a while on food. They had a blind spot, not because of a conspiracy, but she admits they had a blind spot. She says the film is ridiculous and it's dangerously misleading, but Enviro's were late to the food game. They were behind the curve on this.
2: Well... There is an aspect of truth to that, but in 2000, I was um, charged by Robert F. Kennedy, Jr. I was a senior attorney for the Environmental Group Waterkeeper Alliance, specifically to work on environmental problems related to the livestock industry. That's back in 2000, and we worked with all of the major environmental groups in the United States, and I led that campaign for two years before leaving that job. But that was the beginning of a lot of um, environmental groups working, focusing on the environmental impact um, from livestock production. But I think the whole problem with the premise um, of the film and of sort of a lot of the discussion that's been had already is that livestock is inherently problematic when in fact that's absolutely not true at all because it's really about how it's done and if it's done poorly it can have a negative environmental impact if it's done well it's actually an essential part of sustainable food production and and having now worked on this issue for the last 15 years i would say i think there are three keys to sustainable food production and those are water soil and microbiology and in each of those three categories, livestock play an essential role. They play an essential role in building soil fertility and in soil health and especially the microbiology of the soil and in the whole hydrological system of our world, of our world and of our world food system. And there's a lot that's been written about this. I think this is actually the core of where the sustainable food movement needs to go. And this is totally ignored in the suggestion that we need to be moving towards veganism, so when you get rid of animals, you're actually throwing the baby out with the bathwater because they're an essential part of sustainable food production.
4: We're going to roll our third clip from Cowspiracy, and this is Michael Pollan talking about the business model of environmental groups.
9: I think they think it's. I think they focus grouped it, and it's a political loser. In terms of, yeah, because they're they're membership organizations, you know, a lot of them. They're looking to maximize the number of people making contributions. And if they get identified as being anti-meat or challenging people on their everyday habits, that's something that's so dear to people that uh, it will hurt with their fundraising.
4: Jonathan Kaplan, strong words from a very respected food guru, saying that groups like NRDC don't want to be food nags. Is he right?
8: First of all, I'm... Very unhappy with the suggestion that we're sort of profit-motivated. You know, right? The people at NRDC could be making a lot more money working for some private company somewhere. So we're not doing this to raise money. Um, we are a membership organization, and we are a policy change organization. To change policy in this country, you need members. You need to have a large group of people behind you, and we do. We have 1.3 million members and online advocates behind our work, and that allows us to be persuasive in the halls of Congress or with regulators and so on. So yes, we do have to make sure that our messages are inclusive, and we don't think it's necessarily a good strategy to be out there with the message telling people that they're the problem. Now, does that mean we should be silent about it? No. We need to give people the facts, as Kip said. We need to let people understand that their food choices matter, and they matter a lot. And we need to encourage people to take steps to... You know, move down the spectrum toward a more sustainable diet. But we don't think it's necessarily the best strategy to come out of the gate and tell everybody that they have to go to zero animal products consumption today.
2: And it's really important to note that Michael Pollan is, in fact, an omnivore and has repeatedly written and spoken about the importance of livestock in the food system to in getting towards a more sustainable food system. So when we're talking about Michael Pollan, it's really important to note he's not a vegan and he doesn't believe in veganism as the solution for food system problems.
4: So how about Kip Anderson? I get the sense you're coming at from a humane perspective that killing animals is wrong, that there's a moral issue underneath this. I get the sense mm-hmm. it wasn't really.
9: Well, what Kipsky brought up and it just reminds me over and over and over when we're doing a new film on health is the, the similarities between the animal agriculture industry, raising animals for food and the tobacco industry. The exact same thing is coming out right now. The Happened in the tobacco industry 20 years ago it was, un- it was covered up for so long, and then all of a sudden a wave came of truth, and so you know about the antibiotics, it's it's true, it's one of the biggest dangers of facing the entire planet. One outbreak could kill millions and millions. But to say, again, not to tell people not to smoke or not to not to eat meat. We're just asking them. It's like asking Marlboro to not put chemicals in their cigarettes. Why not just say, hey, let's not stop smoking cigarettes. Let's skip. We're not babies. We don't need to do baby steps. We're big adults. <laughs> see,
2: the- I think there's a, there's a huge problem with, with um, the suggestion that. Repeatedly that this is what's motivating environmental advocacy, the fact that it's too hard to tell people not to do this. Because as someone who's been working on environmental issues for a long time and who majored in biology and worked as an environmental lawyer, I can tell you that there is no evidence at all that the optimal food system from an ecological standpoint excludes animals entirely. And in fact, there's a great deal of evidence to the contrary. And I think the one piece of um, sort of written literature I really want people to look at is that a new study that was just published by Dr. Richard Teague and Dr. Ratan Lal, who's one of the leading soil scientists in the world, which is entitled The Role of Ruminants in Reducing Agriculture's Carbon Footprint in North America. This is a brand new peer-reviewed study in the Journal of Soil and Water Conservation, and they conclude that actually having more ruminants on the landscape in the United States would be a step forward from a climate change perspective. So this is not at all, there is no factual or scientific basis for the claim that the optimal system excludes animals. It's just not true.
4: Jonathan Kaplan, can well, cows be part of the ca- carbon solution?
8: Yes, but we've got to have fewer cows. I, mean, I think there's a lot of evidence that shows when you have crop... Livestock-integrated farms, you can close the loop on nitrogen. The farmer doesn't have to buy synthetic fertilizer to put on the crops that he can grow or she can grow the feed for the animals. It's, you know, it's a much more sustainable system than the one we've got now.
4: Kip Anderson, a lot of people switch from dairy to other sources of milk, almond milk. Almonds use a tremendous amount of water. Uh, one thing I've learned in environmental inquiry the last 10 years is sometimes the solution is worse than the first thing. Um, so how do you feel about people saying, okay, no dairy, But then we're drinking almond milk and growing almonds in a drought in California.
9: Well, if you watch the film, to make one gallon of cow's milk takes upwards of a thousand gallons of water. There's absolutely no comparison when you compare that to soy milk. Almond milk definitely takes a lot. We don't recommend uh, to anyone drinking almond milk every day. You can drink soy, you can drink cashew, you can drink coconut milk. And they are incredibly incredibly more sustainable, not only more sustainable, but the ethical choice as well. No splitting up of of, of you know, the mother child relationship of the veal industry, <clears throat> you know, eventually when the cow after it finishes producing milk and lost around five of her calves, then she's killed for hamburgers. It's all just it, you, you remove all that. You can go directly to the source where where most of these big animals get their protein is directly from plants and
2: so. I think you can see that a lot of this is motivated by a desire not to kill animals, and I think that's fine if a person wants to make that planet. dietary choice. But it's really important to understand when ruminants are consuming water and you see those water footprint numbers, 98% of the water that they're consuming, in those, that it's calculated in those water footprint numbers, is green water. In other words, it's the water from rainfall in the forages that they're consuming. So those water footprint numbers used in the film and that are commonly bandied about are... Totally meaningless when you're talking about truly sustainable food production. What matters is blue water, which is the irrigation water, which, by the way, is a lot higher in almond milk production than it is in dairy production.
4: We're going to go to our lightning round, in which we ask each of the guests today to answer a brief yes or no question, uh, starting with Jonathan Kaplan. The issue environmentalists really don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole is human population, yes
8: or no? Wow, ambush. Ambush. (laughs) <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think uh, that question is above my pay grade.
4: Uh, Kip Anderson, most people in developing countries would continue to eat animal protein even if they were aware of negative impacts on the Earth's climate. I uh, yes Totally no? agree. Yeah, it's extremely addictive. Uh, Nicolet Hahn nyman eating a hamburger, which in America or just about everywhere else, is probably made with industrial meat, is one of the most damaging things a person can do to the Earth's climate. Yes or no?
2: Absolutely not true.
4: Jonathan Kaplan, NRDC accepts donations from companies in the agricultural and food industries. Yes or no? No. Kip Anderson, in making Cowspiracy, you modeled facts to your vegan thesis rather than going where the data and story led you. Yes or no? Absolutely not. Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, the grazing practices you advocate for keeping water and carbon in the soil are too complicated for most ranchers.
2: Oh, definitely not true.
4: Jonathan Kaplan, uh, NRDC contributes to deforestation by mailing paper solicitations and other materials to 2.4 million members and activists. Yes or no?
8: Uh, what time does the show end? <laughs> <laughs> 34 you know, minutes. I, again, yes, there's an impact to that, but we are a grassroots membership-based organization, and that still is a really important way to build our membership and, and build our power. So Kip, we, we also fly our staff to meetings around the country. That has a huge carbon impact. We run our computers and so on. So okay. we, are, we do the best we can, but yes, there are environmental costs to it.
4: Kip Anderson, managed carefully, livestock can be part of a balanced ecosystem that serves humans and nature. A hundred years ago maybe now seven billion people absolutely not. Jonathan Kaplan, Cowspiracy exaggerates the carbon pollution coming from animal agriculture. Yes or no? I think so. Last one, Nicolette Hahn Nyman. Some environmentalists are preachy and righteous. <laughs> hmm. Yes. Oh <laughs> anyone sitting here on the stage today that fits that description?
8: Be careful. <laughs> there's, there's,
2: there are people who think that they're environmentalists that are preachy and self-righteous,
4: for sure. All right, uh, that ends our lightning round. How did, how did they do? I think they did pretty well. Let's give them a round of applause.
0: <laughs> We're talking about meat, dairy, and climate-conscious eating at Climate One. Coming up, we'll hear from someone trying to build bridges between meat lovers and meat avoiders.
1: Regardless if you're a vegan or a vegetarian or simply cutting back on the amount of animal products that you consume, You're part of this larger movement of people who want to mitigate climate change and want to align their personal dietary actions with that value.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about cows and climate-conscious eating with Kip Anderson, founder of AUM Films and co-director of the documentary Cowspiracy. Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, a rancher and author of Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production, and Jonathan Kaplan, Director of the Food and Agricultural Program at the National Resources Defense Council. Here's Greg. Let's go to audience questions. Welcome
4: to Climate One. Uh,
10: My name is Leila Salazar-Lopez. I'm the Executive Director of Amazon Watch, and some of you might have seen me in the film (laughs) Cowspiracy. Um, so I was actually in the film. I didn't know it was a film about animal agriculture. I thought it was a film about sustainability when I was interviewed. So I was pretty shocked and disappointed actually Kip, when I saw the film, not because of the issue of we need to get animal ag, you know, in the forefront of the environmental and climate debate. I agree with you. It's a major, major problem that we all need to be addressing and working together on. Not spreading and dividing, which is, I think, actually what you've done. So.
4: All right, thank you. Um, Kip Anderson, your film divided and made environmentalists mad at each other and mad at you. <clears throat> so for example that what we did is when
9: we interviewed these organizations we said it was the leading cause of uh, environmental destruction for this specifically rainforest action network amazon watch what is the leading cause of deforestation by far by far nothing even comes close as raising animals for food and again if you watch the interview for a longer period of time and we actually left a lot of it in there it took so long for her to finally admit it and once she finally it, it's one of the favorite parts because she starts telling the truth. And that's where the story changes to actually truth being told. And people who are vegan and people of, are, are all rocks of life. She's one of the favorite characters because she's the moment where the film takes someone actually telling the truth. So I'm not sure if she realizes that, but she's a huge hero in a lot of people's eyes. And she probably doesn't realize it.
4: And... One of the elements of that, what you call moment of truth, is that people fear for their lives, that people who fight ranchers die, get killed. And that that was part of the fear. Uh, Journalists have to be wary of lawsuits for the same reason. Uh, Let's go to the next question from Climate One.
8: Uh, This question is for Nyman. Uh, what would be your
6: response to the research that has recently come out from the University of Illinois and Climate Healers that said that if we removed cattle from land that was formerly forest, so just grass-fed animals, and allowed the native forest to come back, that we'd be able to sequester more carbon than we've emitted since the industrial era? We'd be able to sequester 265 gigatons of carbon from the atmosphere, which is more than the 240 gigatons we've
7: emitted.
2: Well, if you're taking land out of food production and you're returning it to forest, yes, that's definitely going to be beneficial regardless of what the land is being used for. But the paper I was just talking about a few minutes ago makes it very clear that if you're talking about crop production versus livestock production, the ruminants, if they're well-managed, are going to be actually better for the climate. And so that study is is not that helpful
10: in this discussion, I don't think. Next question. So it doesn't sound to me like what you believe is that far from what the people who think you shouldn't eat animals at all believe, and that your main thing seems to be about soil, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to continue animal agriculture. So couldn't there be some uh, common ground here?
4: Thank you. You do seem to agree on more than you disagree. I'm not sure you can tell it. I I mean,
2: I've spent the last 15 years of my life, a lot of uh, my work has been opposing factory farming. I, I, was the, I was the person who created the anti-factory farming campaign for Waterkeeper Alliance, and I've written, as you said, a, a book entirely uh, crit- criticizing the industrialized way of raising livestock. So yes, there's certainly a, a common ground there, but the role of animals in the food system, I think, is, is, you know, is sort of... The, the film suggests that for moral reasons, it's wrong to raise animals, and I think that's a point I disagree with.
4: We're going to wrap it up here by asking each of you quickly, what's one food to avoid if you're a climatarian, you want to eat a climate-friendly diet, uh, and one food that you should go for? Jonathan Kaplan, a climate-friendly food and a climate-unfriendly food.
8: Avoid industrial-sourced beef and eat more... Mm, popsicles. uh. (laughs) (laughs) Nicolette Hahn-Eyland.
2: I would avoid uh, potato chips. They've been shown to have one of the highest um, carbon footprints of any food. And I would seek out well-raised, grass-fed beef from a local farmer ranch, someone you know.
9: Kip Anderson. Let's say if anything, dairy more than anything. Dairy is probably the most unsustainable. And then to avoid eating the plethora of vegetables. And you you pick one your favorite
4: vegetables
7: you know i
8: love that organic cooking i always ask for more and they call me mr natural on down to the health food store i only eat good sea salt white sugar don't touch my lips and my friends is always begging me to take them on macrobiotic trips yes they are
0: this is Climate One. Even if you're committed to sustainable eating, cutting out meat and dairy can be hard. In that case, Brian Cateman may be able to help. He's president and co-founder of the Reducetarian Foundation, which advocates reducing consumption of animal products as both an expression of values and as a fun way to mix things up in your diet. Climate One's Kelly Pennington spoke to Brian Cateman about what he calls the Reducetarian solution.
10: Brian, you coined the term reducitarian. How did you come up with that, and what exactly does it mean?
1: Well, reducitarian is anyone who's interested in cutting back on the amount of animal products that they consume. And for me, this started with a personal story. I grew up in Staten Island, New York, which is not known to be the most progressive of places in terms of New York City. But the one thing I loved about growing up in Staten Island was there was a lot of nature. As a kid, I went to natural parks and other trails where... I fell in love with the natural world and the animals living within them. And in college, I was sort of that guy on campus. I was an environmentalist. I would tell people that they should take shorter showers and that they should recycle um, and they should use refillable cups of water instead of bottled water. But it wasn't until much later in college that I made the connection between factory farming and many of the issues that I cared about. I read a book called The Ethics of What We Eat by Peter Singer. A friend of mine actually gave me the book while I was on a plane to present some research on climate change, eating a hamburger. I think he gave it to me in sort of jest. But essentially, that book explored how it is that factory farming not only impacts our health and animals, but the natural world in terms of accelerating climate change and biodiversity loss. And so my mind was sort of blown, and I I wanted to live a life that was in line with my values. And so I decided to be a vegetarian, and that went really well. I was healthy. I was happy. I felt good. The problem was I wasn't always perfect about it. I remember one um, evening in particular on Thanksgiving where I grabbed a piece of turkey and my sister kind of called me out on it. She said, I thought you were a vegetarian, Brian. And I said, even in that moment, you know, it wasn't about being perfect. It wasn't about being pure. It was about trying to eat as many meals as possible that were good for our health and the planet. And so I remember another moment, um, you know, as a Jewish vegetarian, I remember having a piece of bacon and my friends kind of making fun of me. And so I said, you know what, maybe I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan, I mean, maybe there's another word to actually describe who I am. And so I looked up words like semi-vegetarian and mostly vegetarian uh, and flexitarian. And all these words describe people who primarily eat plant-based meals, but occasionally include animal products in their diet, and that certainly described who I was. But they still sort of seemed behaviorally inconsistent and didn't have the same moral worth as a vegan or a vegetarian. And if you think about it, there are a lot of people in the world today who might not be initially interested in cutting out most of their animal products and their meals. They might be open to simply cutting back on the amount of red meat, poultry, seafood, eggs and dairy that they consume. So it seemed to me like we needed a word and a community. Of people to encourage others to essentially do that, to cut back on the amount of animal products that they consume and not necessarily worry about being perfect or pure. If you think about it, most people eat 275 pounds of meat a year, at least in the United States, which is an astounding number. And so if we could encourage a large majority of the American population to cut back 10 or 20 percent, that would make a much bigger difference than simply encouraging a small minority of people to go entirely vegan or vegetarian. And it is true, vegans and vegetarians are reducetarians in the sense that they have reduced their meat consumption. It's just that they've done it so effectively that they eat none at all. In that sense, we're all on the same team. And that's the other element I love about the reducetarian movement, is that regardless if you're a vegan or a vegetarian or simply cutting back on the amount of animal products that you consume you're part of this larger movement of people who want to mitigate climate change and want to align their personal dietary actions with that value. And so simply cutting back on the amount of animal products that you consume is a really fantastic way to slash carbon emissions and to help secure a more sustainable planet.
10: Tell me more about being a reducetarian and how it helps fight climate change.
1: Well, factory farming is an incredibly inefficient system from the very beginning. I mean, we have to clear land in order to grow feed that we then will feed to the animals. 80% of deforestation is in some way connected to animal agriculture. We know that 18% of greenhouse gas emissions come from factory farming. We know that it requires 10 times the amount of water to produce one pound of meat protein as compared to a grain protein. For all those reasons, simply cutting back on the amount of animal products you consume is a great way to mitigate climate change. For example, a vegetarian has half the carbon footprint as a meat lover, and for a vegan, it's even lower. And so for all those reasons, simply eating less meat is a great way to help mitigate climate change.
10: How would you recommend someone start this process? And how do you make this change accessible to a typical American meat lover?
1: There are many different ways to cut back on the amount of animal products that you consume. If you're particularly motivated and excited, you certainly could try out veganism or vegetarianism and see how that goes. But you also could try some smaller incremental changes. Probably my favorite strategy is Meatless Monday, where you simply cut out meat on Monday, and the rest of the week, it's your choice. You could also try Mark Bittman's strategy called Vegan Before Six. Breakfast and lunch, you have vegan meals, and then for dinner, it's your choice. You could try Graham Hill's approach. He recommends that You try out weekday vegetarianism, Monday through Friday. You don't eat anything with a face. And then on Saturday and Sunday, it's your choice. But you can also make it fun, make it interesting. For example, maybe you go out to eat quite a lot. And you might say, you know, when I go out to eat, I'm going to have vegan or vegetarian meals. But when I cook at home, I'll I'll use meat. Or perhaps you'll do the opposite if you cook a lot at home. You might try and put the meat in the back of your refrigerator and have the plant-based products in the front because we know that we tend to eat directly what's in front of us. The general message is that it's really not an all-or-nothing premise. Sometimes we think about meat in in this way, either you're a vegan or you're an omnivore, but we know that we make choices about food every day. And so it's important to view each meal as an opportunity to make a vote for the issues that you care about rather than viewing meat consumption as an all-or-nothing premise.
10: Who's to blame for our dependency on meat? And why is it so hard for Americans to transition away from it?
1: We know that people choose food not necessarily based on environmental issues, but primarily on factors like price, on convenience, and on taste. And so in part because meat is everywhere, it's readily accessible, it's often inexpensive because of subsidies, because we know that the government makes these products artificially low. We don't actually pay for what it's worth. We pay for it in terms of environmental costs, but it's not actually captured in the price. And we know that it's often delicious, and that's in part because these foods are heavily processed, and so people's taste buds are just essentially used to them. Um, For all those reasons, people are eating 275 pounds of meat a year in the United States, which is incredible. Um, Part of the challenge is that we have to make plant-based eating more accessible. We have to provide people with restaurants and vegan options in the grocery store that are not only convenient, but are delicious and affordable. And we're starting to see more and more of that, which is very exciting.
10: What do you say to those who are at an economic disadvantage and to those that say your ideas are only for the privileged?
1: Well, what's interesting is that despite the fact that meat is artificially low in price, there are still many plant-based ingredients that are inexpensive. I mean, if you think of rice and beans, for example, which is a staple in countless diets, um, it's extremely affordable. Uh, Last week, I think I made like 20 tacos that had chickpeas, they had beans, it had rice, Um, Yeah, I put some avocado in it, but you probably don't need that. You know, plant-based ingredients are often um, very inexpensive. I do think it's important to recognize, though, that um, veganism and vegetarianism can often be a luxury in a sense. It requires a certain level of time and training and and education. We do want people to reduce their consumption of animal products as much as possible because we know that every single plant-based meal we have is one that's healthier for us and better for the planet. But it's important to remember that it's not all or nothing and so if you know someone who may be struggling or is is not necessarily interested in veganism or vegetarianism simply encouraging them to cut back on the amount of animal products that they consume is the way to go i think it's about compassion we do want to be compassionate toward the planet we want to make lifestyle choices that are going to protect our beautiful earth but we also want to be compassionate toward people and understand the limitations that they face I think, in the end, being compassionate to all, toward all issues, both the planet and the people that inhabit it, is going to be what ultimately results in a much healthier world.
10: Why did you write the Reducitarian Solution?
1: I wrote the book because I think it's in a really important message. There really is no um, other action that we can take that has such a positive effect on so many issues—not just climate change and biodiversity loss, but in terms of improving our health, in terms of saving farm animals from suffering on factory farms. And it's also incredibly easy to do. And I love the positive message. I love that it brings everyone together. You know, I get message from vegans, from vegetarians, from omnivores. It's really not a controversial idea at this point that eating less meat is a great way to improve the state of our planet. So for that reason, I'm really excited about the book. And I think it's a great introductory guide for anyone who's interested in cutting back on the amount of animal products that they consume.
10: So how do you respond to those who look at your book and say, it's just another fad dieting book?
1: I think it's important to recognize that different people are going to be motivated by different reasons. And so sometimes, perhaps as an environmentalist, you might decide that you'd like to speak about climate change or biodiversity loss or deforestation, but perhaps you know someone who's not necessarily motivated by those issues. I think of my dad, who definitely eats well over 275 pounds of meat a year, and he's not interested at all in climate change. But when I tell him that I love him and I want him to be on this planet longer, I'd like him to cut back to reduce his risk of heart disease. It runs in our family. Perhaps um, it'll reduce his, his risk of cancer and diabetes, and certainly he'll lose a few pounds. And so he's more motivated by a health message. You might know people who are motivated by financial reasons. A study recently came out showing that the average vegetarian saves $750 on their grocery bill in comparison to a meat lover. And so it's important to use different messaging to reach different audiences. This way, you're able to bring about the most change possible.
0: Brian Kateman, president and co-founder of the Reducitarian Foundation, on how to get the most out of climate-conscious eating by reducing meat consumption to improve health and protect the environment. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.
4: Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.